want to uh, take this opportunity this morning to wish all the mothers a happy Mother's Day and to let you know that we appreciate you and thank God for godly mothers, mothers of faith, those who instruct their children in righteousness. Turn with me this morning to uh, 2 Kings chapter 4 and begin reading with verse 8. 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 8. And bear with me, we'll read down to verse 37. Very interesting story from God's holy word. One day Elisha went on to Shunem, where a wealthy woman lived who urged him to eat some food. So whenever he passed that way, he would turn in there to eat food. And she said to her husband, Behold, now I know that this is a holy man of God who is continually passing our way. Let us make a small room on the roof with walls and put there for him a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp, so that whenever he comes to us, he can go in there. One day he came there and he turned into the chamber and rested there. And he said to Gehazi, his servant, Call the Shunammite. When he had called her, she stood before him, and he said to him, Say now to her, See, you have taken all this trouble for us. What is to be done for you? Would you have a word spoken on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? She answered, I dwell among my own people. And he said, What then is to be done for her? Gehazi answered, Well, she has no son, and her husband is owed. He said, Call her. And when he had called her, she stood in the doorway. And he said, At this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. And she said, No, my lord, O man of God, do not lie to your servant. But the woman conceived, and she bore a son about that time, the following spring, as Elisha had said to her. And when the child had grown, he went out one day to his father among the reapers, And he said to his father, Oh, my head, my head. The father said to his servant, Carry him to his mother. And when he had lifted him and brought him to his mother, the child sat on her lap till noon, and then he died. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door behind him and went out. Then she called to her husband and said, Send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys, that I may quickly go to the man of God and come back again. And he said, Why will you go to him today? It is neither new moon nor Sabbath. She said, All is well. Then she saddled the donkey and she said to her servant, Urge the animal on, do not slacken the pace for me unless I tell you. So she set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. When the man of God saw her coming, he said to Gehazi, his servant, Look there, is the Shunammite. Run at once to meet her and say to her, Is all well with you? Is all well with your husband? Is all well with the child? And she answered, All is well. And when she came to the mountain to the man of God, she caught hold of his feet, and Gehazi came to push her away. But the man of God said, Leave her alone. For she is in bitter distress, and the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. Then he said, Then she said, Did I not ask my Lord for a son? 
Did I not say, do not deceive me? He said to Gehazi, tie up your garment and take my staff in your hand and go. If you meet anyone, do not greet him. And if anyone greets you, do not reply. And lay my staff on the face of the child. Then the mother of the child said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So he arose and followed her. Gehazi went on ahead and laid the staff on the face of the child, but there was no sound or sign of life. Therefore he returned to meet him and told him, The child has not awakened. When Elisha came into the house, he saw the child lying dead on his bed. So he went in and shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. And then he went up and lay on the child, putting his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, his hands on his hands. And as he stretched himself upon him, the flesh of the child became warm. Then he got up again, walked once back and forth in the house, and went up and stretched himself upon him. And the child sneezed seven times, and the child opened his eyes. Then he summoned Gehazi and said, Call the Shunammite. So he called her, and when she came to him, he said, Pick up your son. She came and fell at his feet, bowing to the ground. Then she picked up her son and went out. Let us pray. Our Father, we give thanks this morning for your word. We thank you that you live and that you are the creator, that you are the redeemer, and that through Jesus Christ, our Savior, you are making all things new. And Father, as we spend time now in your word and hearing what you would have us to hear, we pray that you would open our ears, that you would open our hearts, that you would enable my lips to articulate your word in such a way that you would accomplish that which you intend and that you and you alone would be glorified. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Title of the sermon this morning, All is Well. There are many fascinating stories in God's word. In the Old Testament, there's stories of, uh, of uh, valor. There's stories of, um, of disappointment. There's various stories uh, that are written, and they're all written according to Scripture for the sake of our reproof, our edification, our instruction in righteousness. Uh, but on Mother's Day, there's one in particular that relates specifically to mothers. I think it relates to everyone, but uh, it's about a mother. At least a mother is the heroine of the story. And her experiences embody those of many would-be mothers throughout the history of the church mothers of the church, as well as mothers today. And so we'll look at the story and these several verses that we just spent time reading together in order to see one interwoven theme, one binding thread that weaves them all together, which ultimately, I suggest, is this mother's faith, the Shunammite's faith. The story exemplifies three things, at least, about faith. Faith that induces generosity, Faith that redefines grief and faith that ultimately anticipates restitution. And so we'll look at those three things together this morning. First, faith that induces generosity. The text does not tell us a lot about the Shunammite woman or about her husband prior to Elisha invading her world. In fact, the only thing it says is that they were very wealthy and they were childless. Of course, we don't know they were childless too much later in the story, but they were very wealthy, and they heard that Elisha was routinely coming into the area. And so 
the Shunammite woman goes to her husband and she encourages Elisha to stop in their house and to eat. And in the beginning, that's all it is, is simply providing a meal for the man of God. Then after he continues to stop at her house and to eat and enjoy a meal and, and receive refreshment, finally she urges her husband to build for this man of God, to build for Elisha, a little house on top of the roof, a room where he would have a bed and he would have a table and chairs and, and he would be able not only to uh, eat and to be refreshed, but also to take rest and possibly to write where his physical needs would be attended to. And she did so according to the text all because she made one critical observation. The Bible says, I know that this is a holy man of God who is continually passing our way. Now, it could be that she listened to his message. She heard his word. Maybe she saw the various miracles that God was performing through Elisha during his ministry. But regardless of the reason, she made this critical observation that this man, that Elisha was no mere visitor, that he was no mere stranger that frequented her house. Instead, he was a holy man of God. He was a mouthpiece for Jehovah. And so her response to God's servant was to seek a place where he could be refreshed, where he could be restored. And so in verse 10, she says, Let us make a small room on the roof with walls and put there for him a bed, a table, a chair, a lamp, so that whenever he comes to us, he can go in there. She was looking out for the needs of the man of God. She was generous. We know they were wealthy. Exactly what that meant for that time, we uh, don't know the extreme of their wealth. We do know that uh, her husband owned his own field because he was out with the reapers gathering the harvest whenever his son that would be born to them would die. But we do know that their provision, whatever they had, their resources was the context of their hospitality, of her generosity, that she gave of that which she had so that ultimately the man of God and the purposes of God, the kingdom of God could be furthered in her life and in their region. And so we look at her story and we commend her. We commend her both as an individual, but also as a mother. We commend her, or as a mother-to-be, as, as, as someone who has faith in the God that this man, that Elisha, represents. Elisha, if you're familiar with his ministry, and if not, then I encourage you to read uh, these few chapters surrounding this text here in the book of 2 Kings. But Elisha was used of God, really in an unprecedented way, in the life of Israel, and in a way that would not be repeated until the coming of Christ in the New Testament. God spoke through the prophet Elisha, he and Elijah before him, but particularly Elisha, his ministry was longer than Elijah, and God spoke through him to Israel, encouraging them to return to the God of their fathers whom they were rejecting during this time in Israel's history. And so Elisha was a man of God, but it wasn't simply to serve Elisha that this lady was being generous, but rather to serve the God of Elisha. She perceived that he was a holy man of God, and she sought to honor God with her generosity. Now, the first point that I want to make is that when we look at this mother-to-be, we look at this woman, this woman of God in Scripture, what induces her to generosity, what encourages her to give of her time, of her resources, of her energy, of space in her home, is faith in a God who is there. Faith in a God who provides. Faith in a God who is speaking to his people and who is guiding them and meeting their needs. And it is that faith, ultimately, that 
creates contentment. We know because later, whenever Elisha and his servant are enjoying the room that they have built for them, Elisha asks her to come, and basically she contends that she doesn't need anything. And it's Gehazi, the one that points out the fact that she is childless. So in her heart, according to the text, there appears to be contentment that also is an outflow of her faith. We know this because later in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul appeals to his own contentment in Christ as a reason why the church in Philippi should give to the work of the gospel. We see this in Philippians chapter 4, verse 11, where Paul tells them, I have learned that in whatsoever state I am in, therewith to be content. And then he continues on to encourage them to give to the advancement of God's kingdom. Contentment, not in ideal circumstances, not in uh, negative circumstances, but in all circumstances. Paul says, I have learned that in whatever situation I am in, therein to be content. And so we see that attitude. We see that contentment displayed in this Shunammite woman whenever she is approached by Gehazi and she's approached by Elisha there in the room asking for what she needs. She actually says, I don't need a good word to be put into the king. I don't need my deeds to be commended before others. She doesn't even make him aware of perhaps what was needed, and that was an heir for her husband, someone to continue the family lineage, someone that would take the resources that God had given them, that blessed them with, and manage them and steward them for generations to come. Instead, she is generous. She gives of her time. She gives of her wealth. She gives of her space, and she gives of her food. Everything in the ancient world that would have characterized what it meant to survive and what it meant to thrive. So this lesson, by the way, this lesson of contentment, it'll serve her well, as we will see as we get to the, uh, uh, the, the following verses in our text, whenever her son, which at this point is yet unborn, is taken from her. But her faith in God ultimately induces a generous heart and a generous spirit. Now I'll pause and just make this application because oftentimes whenever you talk to people and, and you talk about giving, whether it be financial or if it's giving of their time, serving in the church, serving in the community, giving of their resources, if you talk about giving, oftentimes people look at what they don't have and use that as a reason for not being generous, not being involved. When in all reality, there are those who have far less and who are involved and who are uh, generous. Ultimately, I suggest that many times our lack of generosity is a result of our lack of faith. That instead of believing that God is there and that he will provide, we look at resources and we're afraid to give. We look at our limited time. We look at our full schedule. We look at our home, which maybe is chaotic, or we have a challenge keeping tidy, or at least as tidy as we would like, and we say, well, I can't invite people over because my house is always a wreck, or I don't have time, or I don't have the ability to cook or to entertain, or the list goes on. But the reality is if we simply believe that God is and that he is the rewarder of all those that diligently seek him, then that becomes a motive for a generous heart. That becomes a means through which we give, not because 
we feel compelled to, not because we feel that if we don't, something uh, that a thunderbolt will come out of heaven and strike us, but we give because we have received. And we give because, first and foremost, God has given to us. And so we look at this woman, the Shunammite woman, and the first thing that we can observe from the story is that faith, her faith in God induces her generosity. Now, the second point that I want to make, and I want to camp out here for a bit because really it's the climax of the story. Everything that we've read up to this point has created the scene for what we're about to discuss. But the second point that I want to make is that the Shunammite's faith redefines grief. Now, we're fast-forwarding at least a year and a half in the story, several years actually, um, but we're fast-forwarding to the time when this barren woman gives birth to a son. And it's not the first time in Scripture when this has happened. In fact, we look uh, at uh, Isaac and, and Rebekah, and we look at uh, Sarah, Abraham's wife, and we see various widows throughout the Old Testament, or rather uh, women throughout the Old Testament who were barren, that were incapable initially of having children. And the promise of God often came to them that they would bear many, and they did. God often opened the womb of the barren in order to give them a son. Not always, but there are accounts in Scripture where that occurs. And so for this lady, who apparently is content, or if she is not content not having children, the text does not say, but for this lady, when Elisha inquires what can be done of her, it is Gehazi, the one that speaks up and says, well, she is childless and her husband is owed. So there's a, a couple challenges there. Maybe she was childless because her husband was owed. Maybe she was childless because of individual uh, physical reasons. But regardless of the reason, the, the, the fact remains that she was childless. And so Elisha addresses this. He prays to God and he tells the woman that a year from now you will embrace a son. And she does so. This is a gift from God to her. It's a gift that you might say God gave because of her generous faith, because of faith that provided a room for the man of God who shared the word of God. But then in verse 18, we see that when the child had grown, one day he went out to his father among the reapers, and this gift of God was suddenly taken from her. He cried to his father, oh, my head, my head. And the father sent him immediately to his mother. And she kept him on her lap till noon, and then the child died. Now, what is most interesting, though, about this story is the way the mother responds. It's interesting in at least three different ways. First, her response is to take her dead son, the corpse of her child, and to bring him up to the chamber of the man of God that apparently is on the roof and to put him on the man of God's bed. This, this room of refuge, this room of rest that she had built for Elisha, she brings her, her dead son there and places her son on the bed of the prophet. And then secondly, she goes to her husband and apparently doesn't communicate anything. Her husband, she simply asked the husband, give me a servant, give me a donkey, I need to travel to the man of God. And her husband actually makes the inquiry. He says, why will you go today? It's not the new moon, it's not the Sabbath. And the tradition was back then that people went to the man of God 
During the time of Elisha, they would journey to the man of God on the Sabbath or the new moon. He would give instructions. He would teach them on the law of God. We see this later also in the Levitical priesthood, where on certain holy days throughout the year, the people of Israel would go to the priest or they would go to the temple. They would go to the prophet and the prophet would instruct them in the way of God. And so her husband was puzzled. And he said, today is not the new moon. It's not the Sabbath. Why are you going to the man of God today? And according to the text, she doesn't answer except to say one word. It's three words in English, one word in Hebrew. In English, she says, all is well. In Hebrew, according to the Hebrew text, she simply says, shalom. Now, shalom is a very comprehensive word. In the ancient Near East, even today, in the Hebrew mind, to say shalom, to say peace, meant more than just the English translation of the word peace. It's a comprehensive peace. A peace that addresses every aspect of your life. It is a general wholeness, a comprehensive wholeness. So that physically, spiritually, emotionally, and in every way, she was declaring that all was right. All is well. That's why when we translate that, that word there into the English, the translators has, have elected the phrase, all is well. And I think they've done so for good reason. So her response to her husband is all is well. How could all possibly be well? This gift of God, this son that you never asked for, but perhaps always longed for, who was given to you because of, of, of your goodness, your faith in God, and God out of his goodness and love blessed you with a child, blessed you with a son. This son was taken for no explicable reason, and he lies dead on the bed of the man of God upstairs. How could all possibly be well? Her faith in God ultimately enabled her to redefine her grief. Her faith in God ultimately enabled her to flee to the man of God, and we don't really know what her expectation was. We could imagine that she was hopeful for answers. Maybe she was hopeful that her son would be raised again from the dead. Who knows? But she fled to the man of God in her grief. And she made the same declaration when she arrives there at Mount Carmel as she did to her husband. By the way, Mount Carmel was at least a good 20 miles from Shunem, which is the place where she lived. And in the ancient world, 20 miles was a good distance to travel, especially if you're on donkey or by foot. It would take at least eight hours to get there. At least. It's if you had a, a smooth terrain. And so, for this lady, it was not simply a simple journey. Instead, it was an arduous journey, a journey of 20 miles from her house to the mount where the man of God was living. And when she arrives, Elisha sees her afar off, and he sends Gehazi, and he says, Is all well? He asks her three times, Is all well with the child? Is all well with you? Is all well with your husband? And even though it's not conveyed there in the English and the Hebrew, it is a reiterative shalom, meaning that at least she was addressing all three of those questions and saying, all is well. And so here again, this Shunammite mother, this Shunammite woman whose faith induced such generosity to the man of God that she created a room, a special place for him to live, her faith once again in a God who is good and a God who is loving, and a God who is gracious, and a God who is just, ultimately in a God who is sovereign and in control 
of everything that may happen in the lives of his children, she declares her faith in this God by one simple statement, all is well. And so she responds that way to Gehazi. And then as soon as she reaches the mountain where the man of God is, she casts herself at his feet and she clings to his feet. And the prophet immediately recognizes that she's distressed. And so he sends his servant ahead. But it's not until she asks a couple questions. Questions that are born from her grief. Questions that are simple, that are raw, that are painful, that are human, that you and I, no doubt, can identify with. When she's at the feet of the prophet, the man of God, verse 28, says, Then she said, Did I ask my Lord for a son? In other words, I didn't ask for this. Did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, do not deceive me? Who knows? We are not told from the text. Maybe she was a hypochondriac. Maybe she was a type of woman that her entire life just knew something bad was about to happen. That the axe was about to fall. And so she was afraid to even try to have a son. Who knows? But here she is imploring the man of God. Did I ask for a son? Do not, did I not say, do not deceive me? And in that line of inquiry, we hear her grief, even though her faith enables her to redefine her grief, it does not remove her grief. And I think oftentimes as believers, we think that faith means that we somehow go throughout life with rose-colored glasses and that we look through the window of pain and deny reality. And that is not what we see from the God of the Bible. It's not what we see from the story of the Shunammite woman. She was not denying reality. She was redefining it. She was not denying the grief. She was expressing it, but she was redefining the grief. Why? Ultimately, because of faith. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 says that faith is the substance of things hoped for. That what we hope for, we do not yet have but we hope that we might obtain it. And so when we look at the life of the Shunammite woman, we know that ultimately her hope was in a God who's good. Now you and I know much more purportedly about the God of the Bible today than she did back then because we have the rest of the prophets. We have God's law, the prophets. We have the New Testament, the very coming of Christ our Savior who reveals God the Father to us. But oftentimes we are tempted in our own lives to look at grief and become overwhelmed by it, to look at the sorrow that we experience and to allow it to consume us, to allow our circumstances to define our hope instead of hope in God and his good character to define our circumstances. But the woman's one reply, this mother's sole reply, both to her husband as well as to the man of God when he made the inquiry, was all is well. Shalom, all is well. Now, we're soon going to witness a happy ending to this story. However, let me speak to mothers in particular this morning for whom your story has not ended perhaps as well as the Shunammites. There are those of you who this, here this morning who have longed for a child. Maybe you empathize with the Shunammite woman in the first few verses of our story when she was barren, maybe you too have somehow made peace with the fact that you never will possibly have a child. 
And there are those of you who God and his sovereignty will keep from blessing with children. There are also those in here who have experienced the joy of conception. You are mothers, but you've had to bury your children before their time. You've lost that which you held dear. And so you can identify with the Shunammite woman better than any of us when she cries out in grief. And perhaps it's a stretch of faith to declare with her, all is well. But that's what the text does. It stretches us to see the God of Scripture as a God who is sovereign and a God who is in control of our daily lives, individually as well as cosmically, that there's nothing that happens in your life and mine that is ever outside of his divine oversight and will. And now for some of you that may sound insensitive, but I would suggest it's because we have become accustomed to a God other than the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is a God who's sovereign, a God who's loving, yes, and a God who's powerful, and a God who's able to do anything, even to respond to Elisha's prayer and give this barren mother a child or a barren woman a child. But it doesn't mean he's obligated to. And so what do we do in our lives when we are confronted with the inexplicable grief, when in, with inexplicable suffering? Do we become angry? Do we become accusative? Do we allow that to define our relationship and how we respond to God? Or do we look to God and trust that at the end of the day, he is good, even though things that happen to us are not? So to each of us this morning, regardless of where you are as a mother, as a father, as a man, as a woman, as a boy, as a girl, let us hear the faith that resonates from this declaration of the Shunammite mother who says, all is well. And let us hear the familiar refrain, even that's stated by Job in Job chapter 13, verse 15, when he says, though he, God, slays me, I will hope in him. And let us see that true faith, faith in the God of the Bible, will gaze into the blackness of our grief and pain and declare that God is good, even if our circumstances are not. And so we can witness in the life of the Shunammite that not only does faith induce generosity, but faith redefines her grief. And my third point is that faith anticipates restoration. Again, we do not know her expectation. We do not know her hope for coming to the man of God. Maybe she hoped for a resurrection. We know the end of the story, but she did not. We look at her response, even when Gehazi is sent ahead and, and he's told to place the staff of the man of God on the face of the, of the dead child, which ultimately represents the authority of the man of God coming into that situation. The authority, and you have to put this in context because I suggest that even with building a room for this man and all throughout this story, it's not about Elisha. It's not serving Elisha. Elisha represents the word of God for the people of God. As a prophet in Old Testament Israel, he would have represented the mouth of God 
Just as the king eventually, and we see this throughout scripture in the, in the book of, uh, uh, of Samuel, how that the kingship and the prophet, the role of the prophet grew up alongside each other in ancient Israel because one represented the hands of God, the other the mouth of God. And so for ancient Israel to hear the word of God spoken through the prophet, it was to receive the word of God itself. He was the embodiment, if you will, of God's message for his people. And so... It's remarkable that the Shunammite woman did not run ahead with Gehazi to see if her desired outcome came true, to see perhaps if the child was resurrected. Instead, she clung to the man of God. And she says this, as the Lord lives, this is verse 30, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So he arose and followed her. There are times, if you've never experienced this, I let me assure you, beloved Christian, you will, that there will be times in your life when all you have to hold on to is the word of God. And that's a good thing. Because as we sang earlier, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. As we confront the trials, as we confront the sorrow, as we confront the suffering of this life, the word of God is there to give us assurance, not of a desired outcome. That's what we hear in Job's declaration there in Job 13, 15. He was not saying, God, I will praise you and I will trust in you and I will hope in you only if I am delivered from my situation. But he says to the contrary, though he slays me, yet I will hope in him. And so our confidence as we claim, the, as we laid hold of God's word and we see the God of the Bible that is revealed to us in the pages of scripture, our confidence is in his good character and knowing that in his sovereign will, he ordains whatever comes to pass. Even if what comes to pass is not pleasant for us, even if it is not good for us, we can say with the Shunammite, all is well. So thirdly, she had faith that anticipates restoration. She would not leave the man of God. Now, I'm not going to spend too much time talking about what happened in the room. Uh, there are things there, I think, that we'll never understand exactly why Elisha did what he did. But I will say that the end result was restitution. The end result was her child her dead son being restored to life. And so we see in verse 36, then he, Elisha, summoned Gehazi and said, call the Shunammite. And he called her. And when she came to him, he said, pick up your son. She came and fell at his feet, bowing to the ground. She picked up her son and went out. So the faith of this unnamed mother in scripture, the Shunammite woman, anticipated restoration. And she was not disappointed. Now, there are two things that I believe this particular part of the text conveyed to us. One, that we have hope in this life. We have hope. Perhaps you're a parent, a mother of a child who is a covenant child but is wayward. They've, maybe they've left the church or they're living in a way that is different from how you have raised them. There's hope. Hope and restitution. Hope ultimately not in ourselves, but hope in the God of the covenant. 
hope in God. And if there's anything, by the way, that this, that this um, process that Elisha points to, it, you know, the fact that the child sneezed seven times, Seven is the covenantal number of God in the Old Testament. It goes back to uh, the, the, the covenant that God initiates, the covenant of grace between himself and his people. And so the basis of our hope, of our longing, the basis of hope in complete restitution is ultimately faith in a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God who has promised and who will deliver on his promises. So as we look at this, we can have hope in this life. And so if your children are wayward, I encourage you to have hope that even as the scripture says, raise a child in the way they should go so that when they are owed, they will not depart from it, that the God of the covenant will be faithful to that covenant. And secondly, I will say that a longing that is never fulfilled, that there is hope even beyond this life for that as well. Because what we know is that faith is not in a desired outcome. Otherwise, the mother could not have said, all is well in the face of adversity. But faith is ultimately in a sovereign God who orchestrates and ordains all that comes to pass. Now, let me just make this, this final point. It's not in the text, but if you were to read ahead in chapter 8, verses 1 through 6 of 2 Kings, you see the last and final time that the Shunammite mother is referenced, her and her son. And by the way, at this point, we don't know if the father's dead or he's not referenced in the passage. But a famine has come. Elisha has encouraged the Shunammite mother to take her and her son and to leave. And in the process of leaving, apparently her farm was decimated and her home was repossessed by the king. And when Gehazi is in the presence of the king in 2 Kings chapter 8, talking about all the wondrous things that the God of Israel has done through the prophet Elisha, in walks the Shunammite woman. And it's just about that time that Gehazi is telling the story of how the Shunammite woman's son was resurrected from the dead. And when the king hears this, that becomes the impetus for him to bring complete restitution to the mother of this resurrected son and to restore to her not only her farm, but also her house. You can read it in 2 Kings chapter 8, verses 1 through 6. And so I suggest that in, in that regard, that her son is a type of Christ, a, a foreshadow of Christ, who ultimately is God's son, who dies and was rose again for the restitution, not only of his bride, but also of all, all creation. And that ultimately there will come a day when the wrong shall be righted, when the most deepest longing of your heart and mind that is never requited in this life will be fulfilled in his presence. And so when we hear all is well, we cannot hear that necessarily things will end for us this side of heaven the way that it did for the Shunammite. It may. God may choose to resurrect physically, spiritually. But ultimately we know that one day all will be made new. That one day, all, right, all wrongs will be righted and restitution, complete restitution, will be made. And so this faith, faith that is demonstrated in the life of the Shunammite mother, the Shunammite woman, faith that induced generosity, that redefined grief, and that caused her to anticipate restitution, this faith is not a stubborn refusal to acknowledge reality 
and attempt to embellish and pretend that pain isn't real. Instead, it is faith that understands that whatever happens is part of God's sovereign will. So, what does this mean on a practical level for those of you who this, here this morning who want children, but for whatever reason are unable to have them? What does it mean for those of you mothers and fathers, those of you mothers in particular here this morning who have lost a child, who for whatever reason, in an inexplicable way, in a heart-rending way, you have been forced to bury your child? What does it mean for those of us as we, this side of the coming of Christ, grieve? Yes, it means we have hope. But Paul says if we have hope in this life only, we are above all men most miserable. It means that we have hope in this life. But more importantly, we know that a day will come when Christ himself will return. We know the end of the story. And restitution, complete restitution, will be made. Now, does that alleviate our grief? No. Helps to redefine it. And it enables us to say, all is well. In conclusion, let me share with you just a, a story that maybe some of you are familiar with. Um, you may recognize the name Horatio Spafford. He lived in the 1800s, between 1828 and 1888. He was a Presbyterian layman in Chicago, rather, rather wealthy layman. And he had established a successful legal career. His business... His business ventures, many of them, were completely destroyed by the Chicago Fire of 1871. A year after, his son, his only son, died suddenly and unexpectedly. He invested all of his resources in real estate, and so every resource that he had invested was also lost during the fire. And ultimately, his saga is very reminiscent of Job. So, having had enough, looking for a vacation, looking for relief, he and his family decided to take a European trip in 1873 in November. He sends his family on ahead. He remains behind here in the States. His family are on a ship known as the SS Ville de Havre. He expects to follow them. But on the 22nd of November, the ship is struck by an English vessel. And all three of Mr. Spafford's remaining children, all three of his daughters, sink to their death in the depths of the sea. Of course, at the time, he's not aware of it until several days later when his wife reaches Wells and she sends him a telegram. And the telegram says one thing. It says, all daughters lost, what shall I do? Well, Mr. Spafford immediately sends her a telegram back that says, wait for me, and he books a ship to meet her. And the ship has to pass over the same path that the ship took that, in which his three daughters lost their lives. And as the ship reached the place where purportedly the first ship was struck, the captain comes to his, his uh, cabin and he knocks on the door and he says, Mr. Spafford, I just wanted you to know that we are currently over the site where the ship went down and where your three daughters are believed to be dead. 
It's three miles down into the deep depths of the ocean. Mr. Spafford purportedly at that time went back to his cabin, sat down, and wrote these lines. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Mr. Spafford knew something that the Shunammite mother knew. And he knows something that God and his word would reveal to you and I this morning. And that is with faith in a God who is sovereign, our circumstances may be dire, but all is well. Let us pray. Our Father, we look to you this morning as the God who is sovereign, the God who is in control. And we admit that even though there are things that happen that bring sorrow and pain and that we may not understand, we know that at the end of the day, all is well. And so, Father, we pray this morning for mothers, for those who grieve for the loss of their mother, those who grieve for want of being a mother, and those who grieve for having buried a child. We pray that their grief might be redefined by the truth of your word. And, Father, for those who simply long for and hope for things that will never be realized this side of heaven, we pray that you would give us patience and endurance so that we might look to the day when you return and you make all things new. Comfort us, O oh God, with these words, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.